Canucks fans, and welcome into episode 140. That's season four, episode 21 of the Canucks Speak Easy podcast. I'm Pete. And I'm Doug. And Doug, let's get into this four-game flight to start things off. The Canucks made their first appearance at Mullet Arena and came away with a 3-2 loss to the Arizona Coyotes. Your goal scorers were Elias Pedersen and Andre Kuzmenko, while Anthony Bolivier ended up with two assists. Canucks then head into LA where Thatcher Demko commits a robbery with 38 saves and stopping everyone in the shootout. Canucks beat the Kings. Two, three to two, sorry, at goal scorers, Brock Besser, Elias Pettersson, Quinn Hughes, and JT Miller, each with a couple of assists. And that was all your points on the board for the Canucks. The Canucks then found themselves in Anaheim against the Ducks and came away with a 2-1 victory. Quinn Hughes' incredible season continued with two more assists, while JT Miller and Elias Pettersson each had a goal and an assist. Canucks fell behind against Vegas. We're down 2-0 after one, thanks to a couple of costly giveaways. Made a good effort of it, but ended up falling short, losing 4-3. It was the JT Miller show tonight. Two goals and an assist. And stop me if you've heard this one before. Quinn Hughes with a couple of assists as well. Pizza guy gets the other goal, and Petey also picks up the helper. Doug, how's it going? We got a lot of Canucks stuff uh, to talk about today, so we're going to get... Some of the pleasantries and formalities just out of the way to start things off because we got a lot of a lot of things we want to dive into today. So how's things going? Uh, things are good, man. Uh, spring looks like it's arrived. Uh, I got to see some friends over the weekend uh, I hadn't seen in quite a while, so it was nice to get a bunch of us friends together. Um, and yeah, man, I'm just uh, I'm looking forward to the weather getting a little bit nicer and getting out and exploring a little bit more of my new neighborhood. What about you, Pete? Uh, how's your week been? I mean, uh, you know, kind of the usual. I'm just kind of starting now to see the finish line before I get to go on the holidays here in a couple of weeks. So it's more just tying up loose ends and making sure everything at work is okay. But uh, yeah, just kind of did a couple of long runs this week, which was great weather for it. And uh, yeah, just uh, just kind of doing the same old thing. As a, I haven't been sleeping very well though lately. There's just every night down here in the West End, and yeah, I know you, this is it's much quieter out where you are. But man, I've had fire alarms going off, or sirens going off, or or people getting in fights in the alleyway. It's just there's been something every night. So uh, I'm hoping tonight to to get a better sleep. Yeah, there's not too many alarms or sirens that you hear going off out in Sawasan, which is kind of nice. I mean, just before we hit record. There was a, a siren going off uh, at your place that uh, was interrupting our pregame uh, plan for this episode. Yeah, well, two blocks from a fire station uh, doesn't doesn't help things either. Uh, Doug, are you ready to get going, man? We got uh, we got a lot of stuff to cover, so let's drop the plugs, let's chat a little music, and then let's get right into some Canuck stuff, folks. If you're not following us on the Twitter machine and you feel like giving us a follow i'm at pete underscore gas the podcast is at canucks speak you can give me a follow on twitter at doug then and check out the playlist on spotify it's the canucks speakeasy outro playlist uh pete and i continue to build the playlist out with the outro segment of every episode and i added another funky jam to the playlist on last week's episode 
Yes, you did. Uh, you added in a nice classic track there. So why don't you tell us all about it? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I was looking at the playlist. I'm like, you know what this playlist is missing? It's missing some some gospel music. And legit, man, like I actually think there's some incredible gospel music out there. And, you know, one of the greatest, if not the greatest gospel group of all time is the Staple Singers. Mavis Staples is one of the greatest singers of all time, in my opinion. And I'll Take You There was the song. Uh, it's been sampled hundreds of times, if not thousands. It's been covered hundreds of times, if not thousands. And it's just a very upbeat song that a lot of people wouldn't even know or realize is actually from a gospel band. And yeah, man, I've always loved the track and it fit well with our playlist as a whole. And yeah, let's throw a little gospel on there. I dig it. I mean, that song, two two samples uh, from that track, I always think of right away, Salt and Peppa's Let's Talk About Sex. And uh, from Naughty by Nature, uh, Ghetto Boy used it as, as well. Those are two from uh, my early 90s hip-hop area that, that I always think of when I hear that song. Yeah, yeah. The, obviously, the Salt and Peppa and the Naughty by Nature. I mean, Naughty by Nature might be one of the first rap groups I ever heard, to be honest. I think OPP might have been the first rap song that I truly remember hearing and like being super popular when I was in like grade three, grade two. That's a pretty banging tune. The sampled the Jackson five pretty heavily. That's a, that's a great tune as well. And folks, you can check that track out. All our other tracks, all the outro tracks are on our ever growing Spotify playlist. It's got all sorts of funky beats and covers more than a shift of work now, which is, which is fantastic. Doug, um, we're going to start with the guy who had a three-game pointless streak and has now put up six assists in three games, Mr. Quinn Hughes, who is doing so many remarkable things right now, it's tough to keep track. Yeah, I, I look, you know, you and I were kind of discussing before this episode about the star players and how we don't necessarily think we discuss some of the star players enough on this podcast, and Quinn Hughes is definitely a guy we do not discuss enough about. I mean, I just pulled up his stats right now. Um, So far this year, he's got in 66 games played, he's got five goals, 62 assists, and 67 points. He's one point shy from his career best of last year of 68 points in 76 games. Uh, He he tied a record that, or I shouldn't say it's a record, but he accomplished a feat that hadn't been done since the mid-90s. And I believe the last two defensemen to have back-to-back 60-assist seasons were a little defenseman named Ray Bork and Paul Coffey. I think it was the 94-95 season, I believe, uh, which which is incredible. And you know what? Even beyond the point totals and the assist totals that Quinn Hughes is putting up this year, I do think we need to give a lot of credit to his defensive play. I think his defensive play has been a lot better this year. Uh, it was, I thought it improved last year too, to be fair. It was the 20, 2020, 2021 season where he struggled a bit defensively, but I definitely think these last two years, he's really taken his defensive game to another level. Is he ever going to be a shutdown guy? No, that's not his game. But the fact that he can skate and outskate almost anybody on the ice and not necessarily with speed, but just with his edge work and his positioning, I think does make him a very effective defensive 
defense of defensemen and yeah man uh quinn hughes i you know i i think we need to talk about this guy a lot more there is another stat that i saw uh, along the similar vein to that all-time nhl history assists per game by a defenseman at this moment in time Quinn Hughes is third. The only guys ahead of him are Bobby Orr and Paul Coffey. Quinn Hughes is leapfrogged Kale McCarr, who's in fourth, and Adam Fox is right now in sixth. So there's you having three active defensemen in the top six right now. But in assists per game, now obviously that may not be a sustainable pace, but he's going up. He's and he's he's continuing to go up. But I think that's pretty incredible. His assists per game. I mean, you look at as well, his power play points per 60 is almost 7, which among the Canucks regulars is by far and away the highest. JT Miller is the next of the power play regulars at about 5.9 points per 60 and his assists per 60 on the power play is is also ridiculous. Uh about 6.5. I he is putting up some incredible numbers on there. It's just and, and you know, you mentioned his defensive play I think uh, I saw some people talking about uh, or just some some discussions on Twitter, not necessarily among Canucks fans, but Canucks fans were jumping in, which is kind of how I noticed it. People were saying, oh, Quinn Hughes is a, he's a one dimensional defenseman. He's all offense. Like, look, he just gets assists. And I, I, I firmly disagree with that. And, you know, I would have looked at some of Quinn Hughes stats from the before last season. You know, he's a minus 24. You remember that like the year before? And we're all like, ooh, you know, he's, he's got to work on his defensive game. And that was something he was even called out for uh, in the abbreviated season. And before that, in the, in the COVID shortened season, he was a minus 10. He finished a plus 10 last year. And now he's at a plus 16. But I don't think he's a defensive liability only because in his own end, when he gets the hand, his stick on the puck, people can't get it from him. He's got a great outlet pass, but he's also, he, he's got, his edge work is so good, he's not afraid to double back, go behind the net, take his time, and he's done this a couple times as well, where he takes his time, lets guys change, because players don't go after him, because they know how shifty he is, and people have gone after him behind the net, and he just goes up around, does a, a quick 270 pivot, and he's got the open ice again. And if people can't get the puck from him, how is he a defensive liability? I mean, I I've, go back and watch a lot of the tape, and I mean, sure, everyone makes mistakes, but there is no way that Quinn Hughes is a liability in his own end anymore. And I say anymore because I do think that year, a couple of years ago, I, I do think he was a liability. I think he was trying to do too much, and I think he's getting frustrated, and he's trying to thread passes through high-danger areas. But I don't think he's doing that now. He's simplified his game. He works the boards more. He uses his edge work more. And I don't consider Hughes a, a defensive liability anymore. No. And look, is he going to make mistakes? Is he going to make aired passes to the opposite team? Of course. Every player does that. doesn't matter if you're Quinn Hughes, Bobby Orr, Ray Bork, Wayne Gretzky, Mario Lemieux. Like Everybody does that. But he has steadily improved his game these last couple of years. And I know, look, I know we overinflated the bubble, but look at what his stats were in the bubble. He was just under a point a game in the bubble. He played 17 games and he had two goals, 14 assists for a total of 16 points. Like this guy has produced at every level he has played at. I think this year he's definitely taken a step ahead again. And one of the other things I really like is what you're hearing Rick Tockett say about Quinn Hughes and how he has become one of the most vocal players in the dressing room. And he's the guy that's kind of talking and, you know, trying to get guys pumped and going over plays with them and directing traffic, so to speak, on the ice with his teammates. And that is leadership quality that I think 
And again, there's this weird narrative about Bo Horvat and, oh, was he the issue in the dressing room? I don't think that's the case. It's a weird narrative that some people are running with. I think they just want clicks. But I do think that Horvat being gone, this has given that chance and that opportunity for guys like Hughes and Petey to kind of step up and take more of a leadership role. And we heard Talkett say that when he first came in, that he needs these guys to step up. And it sounds like behind the scenes, Quinn Hughes has been the guy that has most impressed Talkett with his leadership qualities. Well, this is something I know we said this before, and it's not a knock on Bo, but when you take out the captain and the coach of a dressing room and you put in a new coach and you don't have a captain, it is just natural that the dynamic changes. And that's, again, not a knock on Bo. But I, I do think, I think another thing, and we're going to talk about this guy some more too, um, uh, JT Miller is really kind of, kind of being a, a bit of a, a face for the franchise in a lot of ways, but also bearing a lot of the brunt of the negativity of fans or the, the scorn of media. And by doing that, it, it gives more of a buffer for Hughes and Petey. And I think I think Miller is very aware of that from the way he holds himself. Like, as you know, I like JT Miller. I like what he brings to the team. And I think what he's doing, uh, he knows at his, his age and this point in time, he's not necessarily the captain. He's, he's looking at what he's doing as more of a, a mentorship role. And Quinn Hughes has always seemed very soft-spoken. And I'd never really thought about anything leadership-wise from Quinn Hughes, but now you hear things and you're seeing that he's vocal and you're seeing him step up his game and you're seeing him and Petey lead by example. Uh, I think that pulls everyone forward. And it's really interesting to see because you got a guy, both, you know, a fairly mellow, classic Swedish player and and uh, a, a very kind of quiet, humbled American guy who always looks sad. And the two of them really, it does really feel like since the Horvat trade and again, not knocking Horvat. It's just we're talking different dynamic now. It's it's really these two guys have come out of their shell. And, I mean, Hughes now is third in the league in defenseman scoring as well. He's two points back of Josh Morrissey, who's played four more games than him. I mean, he's could very well finish as the second-highest defenseman scorer this year. I mean, what he's doing is is incredible offensively, but when you hear Talkett give him that praise in the locker room, I think Canucks fans really kind of have their ears perk up because that's not something we really ever expected or used to hearing about him. No. And I, I think it's just and the next evolution in his game and as a player. And I think, you know, I know a lot of fans and maybe even myself included are like, what's the point of winning all these games they are meaningless, yada, yada, yada. However, I do think it does help the team heading into next year and it kind of lets your leadership core start to develop naturally. Obviously, you know, you would expect a guy like Hughes being as an important player to this franchise as he is to be the guy to kind of step up and take that opportunity. But some guys don't. Some guys kind of shy away with that. And Hughes hasn't shied away with that. And I think that just goes to show the type of player he is and the type of competitor he is and how he, he wants to win at every level. And I love that. And I think that's something that really uh, is, you know, I mean, he's already the best defenseman this franchise has ever had, without a doubt. You know, Matias Olin's my favorite Canuck defenseman of all time. I know BX is one of your all-time favorite players. Uh, 
Alex Edler as well, Yurke Lume, Sammy Salo. I mean, even Ed Jovanovsky, it was a short window-ish for Jovo, but he made a pretty big impact. But to me, Quinn Hughes is better than all those guys. And I think the sky's the limit for this guy. I think you're starting to hear a little bit of buzz. I don't think he's going to win it, but you're getting to hear a little bit of buzz about him being in Norris Trophy talks. I know Craig Button was on with Donnie and Dolly this week, and he said he votes for the Norris Trophy, and he'll probably vote Hughes top five, if not top three, uh, in his Norris voting this year. You know, I don't know if he'll he'll get the top vote for the Norris Trophy winner, but he's a guy that definitely, definitely deserves to be in that conversation now. It's I think so. I mean, you also look at average ice time, and he's sixth in the NHL with that too I mean they, they talk it isn't resting him they're using him a lot and I, I do think now this is where a lot of Canucks fans narratives uh really differ and we're going to hear this discussion until November is are these games meaningless why are they winning um I do think it's important for them to to come together now and learn talk system now as opposed to having to learn it all in October I do think there's benefits to that but None of this can be answered until we actually see how they come out of the gate and how they play their first 10 games in October. That's really going to answer that question. And so for me, yeah, you still get Hughes playing a ton. I mean, why not? I mean, as a fan, you want to see Hughes and you want to see Pedersen and you want to see these guys play. I mean, you can't teach players to lose. And especially when you're trying to rebuild a culture here, you can't say, oh, Quinn, we're only going to play you 10 minutes tonight. That doesn't work. That's not going to work. That's not going to go over. And when you're starting to see players like Hughes and Pedersen really start to build momentum with their careers, you want to nurture that. You want to give them ice time. You want to be like, hey, you're our guys. Let's go. And, I mean, those again, Quinn Hughes as well, really good contract for the next four years after this too. I mean, he's it's, a, it's something that uh, he, it's, a, it's a very high cap hit, but it's he's going to be playing well above what he's making. Yeah, and I mean, I think Quinn Hughes is already, I think he's jumped up to like top five, top six all-time points from a Vancouver Canucks defenseman. And, you know, not that it's a giant, um, it's a massive list, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm pretty sure he's like top five, top six all-time uh, points from a Canuck defenseman, uh, which is incredible for how young he is and into his career. I mean, we're looking at a guy who in the next four or five years could be the all-time point leader for the Vancouver Canucks from the back end. Uh, Yeah, he's currently ninth, but he's two back of Jovo at eighth, four back of Salo. He's also nine back of Bieksa. So, like, I mean, there's a good chance he's going to pass all those guys. Finish the season as already the sixth highest scoring defenseman. And he's played by far and away the fewest games out of anybody in the top 15. It's not even close. So, I mean, he's going he's, he's to get up there. But, because I'm looking on the same thing you are, if you go to the season stats, they're missing a whole bunch of points from Quinn Hughes for the season. If you were to go to the... So that's why I don't know if this is actually up to date because I was looking at the season stats on here and it said he only had like 41 points or something like that which I thought was a little strange. Um, hmm. I think we're looking at different things. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, I, I don't see that at all. 
I think uh, I'm not sure what website you're using, but uh, I think mine's I think mine's is showing that he's got 67 points this year. It is showing that now, but it wasn't before. But anyways, I'm getting off topic here. Uh, but like you said, Pete, like he should be top top six by the end of the season, probably it or at least top seven. And the amount of like he's played what 200 games compared to some of the other guys who were looking at yeah. 400 games for Edler. Uh, it, or 700 games for Edler. It's it, it's phenomenal, and it's nine 900 games for Edler. Nine. Yes, you're right. Sorry, that's all in 770. Um, I'm all over the place here. But anyways, uh, Doug's still learning his computer. I am. I am. The internet. First time using it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, this man. Is what happens when you don't make a Facebook page, Doug? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, but yeah, like it, looking at the pace he currently is on, he should jump Kevin Bieksa for sixth all time in scoring from a Canucks defenseman, which is incredible. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And he's right now, you know, pretty much playing at a point a game, uh, which I don't think we've seen from a Canucks defenseman probably since the eighties. You know what I mean? Like that's probably the last time I remember, or maybe Jovo. No, Jovo never had anywhere that high as like eight. I don't. Points. I don't think we've. I don't think we've ever had a seventy-point defenseman. I, I can't think of anyone. I mean, I think Doug Lidster had the record before Quinn Hughes, right? And yeah. uh, and Lidster, the most he had in a season uh, with the Canucks, just quickly was sixty-three. Like I don't think he. I don't think the Canucks have ever had a seventy-point defenseman. So Quinn Hughes is going to be the first Canuck to hit 70 points and he'll be the first Canuck defenseman to hit 80 points, whether he does that this year or next year. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible uh, just seeing what he's doing right now though. And um, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of Canucks fans are really starting to realize it and we, we've been aware of it, but the, the development from where he was last year when we were like, wow, this guy's good to this year is noticeable uh, on not just the offensive production and the points, but just how he is in his own end and now how he's carrying himself uh, apparently in the locker room as well. Like we're, we're, we're seeing him come into his prime. And this also goes back to the whole thing that uh, uh, that's also divided. A lot of Canucks fans is do you retool or rebuild? And for myself, what I've seen with Hughes and Pedersen and Demko lately, and I was, I was being pretty hard on Demko for a bit there. Cause obviously he had a, uh, uh, a tough season and I think I just naturally undervalue goalies a, a lot more than I should uh, but what I've seen from those guys lately it's like you know what I I think there could be something here the problem is that the team hasn't really set themselves up to surround them the right way so how do you do this and that's really going to be the real challenge because I think with Pedersen and Hughes and Demko there I, I think you do have something um, it's just how do you surround that something with enough pieces because we we know there's glaring holes in the lineup that need to still be addressed yeah and obviously freeing up some salary cap as well uh they've got too many wingers at the moment um the back end or the you know the rest of the defense has still got a lot of question marks heronic who is meant to make his debut thursday we'll talk a little bit later or a little bit later about that uh should help but the core pieces are there. And I think there seems to be, I would like to know what some people think a full-on rebuild is and what some people think a full-on retool is. Because I think sometimes those definitions might be closer to what you think. Because I don't know if anyone who was talking about a rebuild, you know, 
was talking about trading Petey or talking about trading Hughes. Like Hughes was the one guy that yeah. you're like, you know, okay. But, you know, there was a lot of people who wanted the rebuild that were saying, we should trade Demko. That were, I proposed a couple of potential trade things for Hughes going to the Devils to be reunited with his brothers, right? But I don't think anyone was ever mm-hmm. going to trade Petey. Like that was never kind of on the cards. And I, I just think some people, what they think of a retool and a rebuild is different. And I think what this management group is considering a retool is different than what Jim Benning did when he first came in as the GM of the Canucks. And I think a lot of us, fairly and rightfully so, have a little bit of PTSD from the retool word because we should have rebuilt in 2014 and we didn't. And so now it just seems like history is about to repeat itself. And some of the decisions and trades and acquisitions, yeah, you can question them somewhat, but I do think we're starting to see this team come together and the vision of this management group slowly come together. Do they still need to move money out? Yes. Are there still questions on the back end? Yes. Do they need to find a third line center? Yes. But I do think the pieces that they've been able to put around some of these players have worked out relatively well. Andrew Ku- and Andre Kuzmenko, Ilya Mikheyev. Uh, I look at uh, Anthony Beauvillier, I think has been good. Dakota Joshua has been great. You know, getting Ethan Bear mm-hmm. for a song has been good. There's been a lot of solid acquisitions. Have all of them worked out? No. But again, to their credit, they've moved on from those ones that haven't worked out relatively quick. I look at uh, Curtis Lazar and Riley Stillman. They moved on from those guys relatively quick. And they're not afraid to realize that they might have made a mistake or a certain player isn't a fit and go in a different direction where Benning and the old regime, they seem to kind of like hold their ground and dig their heels in on a player that necessarily didn't fit. In the old regime, there were less voices as well. I do think that there is more of a, a plan here. Uh, two other things I think they need to address in, ter- uh, in addition to what you said. They need another top four right side defenseman and they need to restock the prospect cupboards. I know we talked about this last year about how uh, we expect them to really be active with targeting NCAA free agents and possibly European free agents uh, as well. Um, so you get those kind of older players to kind of come on in there. But it's also why I don't think they're they're going to be looking to trade their first round pick this year. I think uh, that's something that's being bantered around a bit where people are saying, oh, well, they traded the one first rounder for Hironic. Uh, they may as well trade this one too. And I, I don't think that's the case. I think they're going to try and keep a first rounder every year until they actually have a, a good team because I think that's part of the vision. And especially when you see mid-round first like Jonathan LeCaramacchi, who hasn't really hit this year, this is a higher pick that the Canucks are going to get in a deeper draft. I think uh, that's uh, really important for them to keep restocking uh, the cupboards uh, with, with that. But it's for me, it's, um, you know, Petey and Hughes, I am starting to really think like, hey, it's worth a shot at least. I mean, given where the Canucks are, I think you can try for it. However, if it spectacularly blows up next year, then I might be preaching blow it up. But because we've given enough chances, if this man, October is going to be one of the most crucial months in, do I dare say Canucks history? I don't know, because it kind of feels like it is. If the Canucks come out of the gate like three and seven next year in October, good God, like uh, it's going to be uh, it's going to be hellacious out there for Canucks fans. They This team needs to come out and at the very least play like they're playing right now. And what I like to, or what I hope to think is that the, the team uh, that they're going to ice to start the year next year is going to be better than uh, 
the team that they currently have. So, I mean, hey, I, I know I'm a glass half full, but uh, I do think with what we're seeing from Quinn Hughes, who I think is playing, I don't think he's going to win the Norris, but he's going to get votes for the Norris. Will he be a top three finalist? Like, uh, fuck, you know, he... Uh, there's there's a case where he could be named a top three finalist. The argument against him is the same argument against Carlson is that they're they're on non playoff teams in the West, which is certainly gonna they're gonna hurt their voting odds. But I think you know you got a guy who should be maybe top five, certainly top six or eight in Norris voting, and then you got a guy who again same thing could be in the heart discussion if the team was a playoff team. But he should certainly, and we've argued this a couple of weeks ago, certainly be in the Selkie conversation in uh, Elias Pettersson. Although now JT Miller leads league in shorties. Uh, so, I mean, you could also start making a case for JT Miller in there too. But you have those two guys, and you got a, a good goalie on a good cap hit back there, which is, which is excellent. Um, you know, I think it's worth at least kind of seeing what this group has in mind you're starting to see it. They got their coaches in there. They're starting to play the way they want to. You're starting to see what they're after here. There's been, they've made more trades this year than any other team. So it'll be interesting to see, but I think they do deserve a, a shot to at least get the team where they want to. And if, man, I tell you, though, if it fails, then I'm I'm fully on blow it up by that point. We tried trade everybody then, but I, I don't. I, I I just from what I'm seeing now and where I'm seeing the evolution of our core players, I think I actually do think for the first time in a long time this is a little bit of hope, which probably makes me a fool. Yeah, a couple things to unpack from everything you just said. Uh, Lacaramaki actually apparently came back from injury and uh, was on Jurgarden's first line today, which is great. I saw Chris Faber oh, report nice. that, so he came back from injury two weeks earlier than expected. I believe he was away for. He's missed the last six weeks, and they expected him to miss eight weeks. So that's good. Apparently, he worked out in the gym a lot, whatever that means. But glad to hear he's back. I don't know if he put up any points today or anything like that. Um, I'm going to say this right now. Next year, when we're doing our like prediction episode, I'm going to say the Canucks <laughs> are not a playoff team. And I want you to hold me to that because... Every year, I'm kind of overhyping the team. I'm like, oh, yeah, they're going to have 105 points. They're going to do this. They're going to be a playoff team. I'm going, I'm saying they're not going to be a playoff team. A little reverse psychology here. I'm hoping it works out. Maybe it will. Maybe it won't. Um, but overall, like, I agree with you, Pete. Like, I, I, I do think that the young group, you know, PD, Demko, Hughes, and I know Demko's missed the majority of the season, but I do think these last few games he's played down the stretch are actually very important. And I actually think it's Demko didn't look confident to start the season. And he definitely looks like he's getting his confidence back. Did he let a stinker in against the Vegas Golden Knights? Yeah. But every goalie lets in a stinker once in a while. Um, I do, I do think this team is on the verge of being able to kind of take that next step. Are there still question marks? Absolutely. Petey's, Again, he's going to finish the season over a point a game. He's got 89 points in 68 games, so he's definitely finishing above a point a game. I think the big thing with Petey and most Canuck fans now is can he hit 40 goals and can he hit 100 points? I think he probably can. I know the schedule is kind of nice for the Canucks. They don't have too many really tough opponents left at the moment, which is nice. But 
I think that's what a lot of people are going to be waiting for. They're going to be seeing, you know, for those point totals, can he hit those point totals? And then the other massive question in the offseason, and I think this could really dictate the future of this franchise, is can the Canucks and this management group get him signed to a long-term deal? They can finally negotiate a long-term deal come this offseason. Do they get his name and uh, signed to a long-term contract? Petey's seventh in the league in scoring. He's tied with Jason Robertson and Nathan McKinnon, and they're all one point back of Mitch Marner. Marner's played a couple more games than Petey as well. Uh, I agree, the contract, I, I would love to see that get done this summer. Just I think it should be a top priority for management. Just get that done so we don't have to talk about it. Lock him up, pay him. It's going to be a big deal, but uh, I think uh, you do that right away. Uh, will Petey hit 100? I think so. I think he's going to go all out for it. Will he hit 40 goals? I think that's going to be tougher. Uh, he's he's sitting at 33 right now, which I don't even think is uh, tops on the team at the moment. I think uh, Kuzmenko has more, but uh, I think he'll hit 100 points, I think, uh, which would be pretty incredible. Yeah, Kuzmenko's got one more than him. Um, but again, like, you know, you got a guy who's top 10 in league scoring in a, in a year where scoring is up. I feel like a lot of these guys, uh, and again, I'm 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 probably biased with it, but I feel like every player in the top ten has had more conversation this year than than Elias Pettersson. I think Jason Robertson has been a revelation, and you hear his name come up a lot. And Dallas is, of course, doing better than Vancouver. Tage Thompson has been a revelation, and uh, Buffalo's having a, and of course, with their proximity to Toronto as well, makes him more noticeable. Um, and everyone else in there is a, is a bona fide star uh, already. And so uh, I think that Pettersson has gotten a little bit lost in that, which makes it, it tough to get him heart votes. Selkie votes, I tell you, man, uh, he should definitely be getting uh, getting some conversation in there. Uh, out of the top ten scores, I'm I'm just uh, doing a quick look here of those all those guys I mentioned. Out of those top ten, he's got the second most penalty killing time uh, per game after Mitch Marner. So there's again nods, uh, and Marner could also be in the Selkie Trophy uh, conversation too. But um, I do think that there is something here and. I mean, it, it, I understand why fans want a retool. For me, though, or sorry, uh, a rebuild, and I get that. But for me, a rebuild is blowing everything up, and you're sending all those guys out the door, and I think those guys, it's such a unique and special combo. I, I don't think you do that yet. Yeah, I, again, I think you got to give it at least one more year, and you know, if PD's intention is, isn't to sign a long-term contract, then you're definitely going to blow it up. However, the other thing about PD's point totals, which I think is also under talked about is he only has 21 power play points on the entire year. He only has four power play goals on the entire year. You look at everybody mm -hmm. above him and their power play goal totals and assist totals. They are far greater than what PD's are. I mean, Mitch Marner's got eight power play goals, double what PD has, and 25 power play assists. Obviously, you know, you got Drysaddle and McDavid leading the way. Each have 20 power play goals, or Drysaddle's got 27. Um, his five-on-five -five point total this year, it's got to be tops in the league, I would imagine. Well, maybe not tops, because McDavid's got so many fucking points this year. But <laughs> it's got to be like top two, top three. And, and I think, you know, his five-on-five play, five five play this year has been incredible. And the fact that he's putting up that amount of points at five-on-five, five, 
you know, you hear last year a lot of the JT Miller naysayers were saying, oh, well, he's just getting all his points on the power play. You know, that is not happening this year with Petey. You know, the majority of, of his points are coming five on five, which is such a hard thing to do this day and age when special teams are such an integral part of the NHL and team success. I mean, the only other guy who's got the same amount of power play points as him is Eric Carlson, who's 11th in uh, scoring overall. Obviously, he's got the most points by defenseman, but he's only got four goals and 17 uh, power play assists as well. The exact same power play totals as PD, but he's a defenseman, so it's a little bit different. Still very impressive what Carlson's doing. But uh, yeah, man, his five-on-five five point totals is, is is something to really, really admire. Yeah, I just uh, I've got I pulled up some stats here quickly uh, for five on five, and uh, he is still top ten uh, in the NHL. He's he's tied for seventh there as well in five or five on five points. So uh, again, pretty pretty impressive what what he's doing. Uh, and then Demko um, having Demko back in form has really obviously made them competitive again. I mean, the team won a game 2-1. It was the first time all season they won a game where they scored less than two goals, or sorry, less than three goals. Yeah, and that's incredible too. We're, what, 65 games, 66 games into the season when they won that game 2-1, and it was the first time all year that they actually did that, or second time, I think, maybe, but it, it, crazy. No, it was the first time. First, first time, time they okay. won uh, when scoring less than three goals. Uh, it, it's crazy. They were like 0-28 or something like that before that. Yeah, and, and and again, I think a lot of that has to do with Thatcher Demko, right? Just how important he is to this team. Yeah, and and that you know, again, uh, defense is is a team game, and um, I'm really curious to see how adding in Philip Peronik uh, changes that as well in their back end when you have a, a good puck moving right shot defenseman finally. Um, but I do think Demko, what he's brought is something that we we since he's come back we haven't seen that since last year and it's something I think at least for myself I'd kind of forgot about and just the goaltending had been has not been very good this year and now all of a sudden you kind of stabilized on the back end and even Colin Delia when Delia came in for that one game Delia looked better you know like uh, that was a good game for Colin Delia when he came in uh, as well so I, I think uh, a lot of credit to the team but. I think the team plays better when uh, the goalies are better too. And I think it's, uh, they got kind of got confidence going both ways right now, but overall Demko looks good. Your three guys that you're kind of building around look good. Your best supporting piece, JT Miller has been playing very well lately uh, as well. Uh, he's been putting up a ton of points and, then after that, everything is still kind of uh, kind of a question mark going from there. What we're going to see and what's going to happen, but uh, I think that there is enough. There's enough of a base there that I think you got something to work with. Um, and again, Philip Peronik, really curious to see what he brings. It sounds like he's going to be in the lineup against San Jose. Uh, I guess that'd be today by the time we release that. We're recording this on Wednesday. We're releasing this on the Thursday morning. And it sounds like Peronik is going to be playing. Thursday night uh, against the San Jose Sharks. Yeah, I think every Canuck fan is looking forward to seeing Hironic make his debut. Uh, obviously, given what the Canucks gave up to acquire him, there's still a lot of questions about Hironic. Um, but I'm excited. You know, I mean, I was almost getting to a point I didn't even know if we were going to get to see him this year because uh, the team just didn't seem to be giving any real updates on his status and if he'd be ready in time before the end of the year. Um, 
I'm very interested to see what the D, D pairings are going to be. I think he's a guy, because I would imagine most power plays in the league, you're running four forwards and one defenseman. So he's probably not going to get on the first unit power play, but he'll get on the second unit power play, and he's got an absolute howitzer of a shot. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that's really going to help out that second unit. And, you know, who knows? Maybe they will flirt with having uh, – two defensemen and three forwards on the power on the first unit. But I would assume most power plays in the league have gone to a four one. Um, and he's solid defensively. He's a guy that, you know, is he a stalwart shutdown defenseman? No, but he has a solid defensive game to him. Um, he makes a really good outlet pass and, yeah, man, I'm going to be glued to the TV watching the game to see his debut. Is it going to be a Pavel Bure debut or an Elias Pettersson debut? <laughs> no. So, or a Louis Erickson. Or Louis well, Erickson. Let's hope it's not, like hope Erickson, it's not Louis debut. Erickson for sure. Oh, my God. <laughs> I just really hope he comes out and has a, a, a strong game because, again, we are, we've we've yet to actually see what we've got with Philip Peronik, who's having a very good year in Detroit. Um, we get to see if he's the real deal or if Detroit – was able to unload him at a time when they thought his his value was high. Um, but I do think that Horonic is going to bring something to this team and to this equation. Um, also on the defensive front, um, I know you were saying earlier before we started recording, Doug, it sounds like OEL might not be coming back, eh? Yeah, I saw a report today, and I guess uh, maybe it was this morning, the morning skate or the post-game uh, Rick Tockett interview, but uh, Tockett said that he doesn't expect OEL to play again this season, that he's probably being shut down for the year. I don't think there's been an official announcement from the team or anything like that, but it does sound like that talk. It's probably not going to, or not talk it, pardon me. OEL is being shut down from, for the year, which if you are one of the people, and I know you're one of the guys leading the train, Pete, to buy OEL out this Mm -hmm. off season. If he's hurt, you can't buy him out. And who knows if the injury is going to be, as long as when the window to buy players out will be, but that could put a little wrinkle in maybe some of the offseason moves that the this team can do. So, you know, I, I mean, yes, I, I have been advocating a bit for the OEL buyout. Um, but and and here's here's my reasoning for for this. But you're right, if he's injured, he can't buy him out. So that makes it tough. Um you got four more years of seven point two six million. And you've got a defenseman now who didn't have a good year, will finish the year if he doesn't come back with 22 points in 54 games. What do you do? And he's also got a full no-move clause. So that means you really have very limited options. Um, You can try and trade him, but he's got all the veto power, so you can only trade him to a team that he wants to go to. You're going to have to retain on that. To what level do you retain you're going to have to give up an asset in all likelihood. And so then the only other option is is a buyout. And it's not a great buyout. We've got to talk about it for eight years. But the first year, you don't notice it at all. Years three and four, we'll certainly notice it. But I just, I don't know. Like, I mean, is it worth having that $7.2 million in cap space for four more years tied up to OEL? Or is it worth having between three and a half to five million freed up over the uh, seven-year period, and seven million freed up next year, where you can 
do something with, uh, whether it's to take on a bad contract with some assets or just kind of figure out what you're doing with your roster. I don't know. There's a lot of different things you could do, but again, you know, it's, it's a shitty situation overall, but it's something that, uh, I just don't see four more years of this 7.2 million cap hit being good for this team. Well, again, let's hope that that deal the NHL just signed with Fanatics uh, gets the salary cap uh, up a little quicker than some of us think. Um, But yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for them to navigate that. Like you said, he has full control. You can't even put him in the minors. He has a full no movement clause, which means he can't even be sent down to Abbotsford. Um, When he, he was talking to Coyotes management prior to the trade, he said the only two teams he would consider getting traded to were the Canucks and the Bruins. Um, so he had already kind of put the clamps on the Coyotes when they were looking to move him and his contract out. I've only given them two teams to negotiate with. Um, thankfully for the Coyotes, Benning was willing to give him, you know, a, a song and a dance for Oliver Ekman Larson. But yeah, it is weird because I, I, I don't, I don't know what to do. I like I do think they need to move on from him, but he did play relatively well last year. He didn't put up many point totals, but he played well defensively. And this year, for whatever reason, he struggled mightily. I don't know if he's had a nagging injury all year and that's kind of slowed him down. He looked slow. He looked tired right from the get-go. And again, this is pure speculation, but I don't know if he had an injury that he was just kind of nursing and playing through. I mean, Ilya Mikheyev played on a torn MCL for half the year, right? So maybe and Demko was hurt too. Demko, exactly. Besser with his wrist was hurt. So maybe he had been playing with an injury and he finally just decided and the team decided, hey, it's probably best that you sit down. But he wasn't that bad last year. Like he actually played better. Even some of the people who were vehemently against the acquisition thought he played above their expectations last year. And this year, for whatever reason, he just looked lost out there. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the other option is maybe uh, uh, if he is really hurt, there is the LTIR option. So there is that too, um, which of course is not necessarily preferred by the club, but it does give you more cap flexibility once you, uh, uh, in terms of of what you can maneuver with, it just kind of makes more carryover bonuses and other things a lot trickier for for the Canucks, but there is the LTIR option. The Canucks already have quite a few guys there. Elia McKayev, Michael Ferland, Tanner Pearson, and Tucker Poolman are are all there. So um, who knows? Like, I mean, we don't don't know if Tanner Pearson or Tucker Poolman, the two TPs right there, we don't know if they're going to come back. It sounds like McKayev will come back and Ferland's off the books after this year. Um, But, I mean... That's the other option with OEL. So we'll see. I just don't think that you can have four more years of OEL like this. So it's either a trade, a trade and retain, LTIR, or a buyout. Um, And if you're trading, you got to find a taker. I know Canucks fans are like, oh, they should trade and retain. It's like, well, who are you trading? What teams are willing to do that? Like Arizona? He's not going to go back to Arizona. Columbus? He's not going to go to Columbus. So it's it's limited options. Well, and you're going to have to give up a... uh a pretty big asset for a team to even take his contract mm-hmm. on, regardless of you retaining or not. Um, you're still, I mean, yeah. look at what the Leafs had to give up to get rid of Marlowe the last year of Marlowe's contract at 5 million. OEL makes seven and a half. There's no way that they're going to be able to give up OEL for no less than 
a first and a second round pick in my mind. And that's probably still low. Mm -hmm. And you're still going to have to retain probably 25% of his salary. In that, in that case, you're better off just buying him out and sucking it up for eight years and hoping, you know, in the third, fourth year of the buyout that the salary cap is so high that it's not really crippling your franchise at that time. See, that's the thing is if you're trading him and retaining, I think it's around the 30% mark is where you'd be at for the buyout levels, except for years three and four. So if you're retaining more than 30%, you know, you're kind of better off in a lot of ways looking at the buyout. The only difference is that the retain goes for a much shorter period than what uh, the buyout goes for. But We'll see how we'll see how this goes. Uh, we we've I've had fun talking about the Canucks players up to this point. So um, <laughs> before we go into before we go into the free pour, Doug, uh, we wanted to talk about the the Pride jerseys and uh, what's going on. We saw Chicago today become the latest team to say they're not doing the Pride jerseys. Vancouver's Pride Night is coming up, and they haven't confirmed. Or denied anything about the jerseys. There's a lot of speculation, though, that the Canucks won't be wearing pride jerseys, especially with the amount of Russian players on their team. Yeah, it's... Obviously, this was all spurned from Provorov uh, earlier in the year, refused to wear one of the Flyers' pride jerseys during warm-up, cited his uh, Russian Orthodox beliefs as the reasoning why... Uh, we had recently, as this past weekend, James Reimer of the San Jose Sharks saying he wasn't going to wear them because of his religious beliefs. And I think this has started to kind of spiral into what's meant to be a very positive and a very inclusive thing that NHL teams have been doing for a, quite a few years now. I mean, the Canucks have been doing this for what, going on at least two years. I believe they've done this. Back-to-back -back years, they've, they've worn the Pride warm-up jerseys um, and now I don't know if teams are just having internal dialogues in their dressing room with their players and certain players are saying that they don't want to wear the Jersey. And now the teams are kind of pulling back on wearing these jerseys for the warm up. Uh, it's a shame because I do think, you know, we, up until Provorov kind of took that stance, teams were doing this as far as I'm aware. And again, I don't know if every team was doing it, but I was assuming most teams were doing it. Um, and now this year, that really seems to be changing. I think a lot of teams in their management group and their players don't want the negative backlash of a, one of their players saying they're not going to wear the jersey, which again, I again, I think it's bullshit. It's like, oh, I wore a pride jersey. You know, it's not going to turn, turn you gay. Sorry. You know what I mean? If, if that's what you're scared of, that's not what's going to happen. It's just like you're supporting people um, who have been marginalized for decades upon decades, who love this game and love this sport and want to feel inclusive and included. I know um, National Predators prospect uh, Prokop came out and he was the first player to be drafted and come out uh, openly gay, uh, said he was very disappointed in What's been transpiring this year, obviously with Provorov, with Reimer, with now the Chicago Blackhawks. I believe the Buffalo Sabres are meant to have their pride night this coming Monday, and that's in question now. And it's a shame. And On the Rangers, the Rangers and the Wild as well. Okay, yeah. Um, and it's a shame. And, you know, we've had Cody Sweet 
on this show and on our podcast. And, you know, he's, he's an incredible follow. He's an incredibly loyal fan who goes on road trips all across America to watch the Canucks play. And he's made a couple of really important threads about how it makes him feel more inclusive included in hockey and how important it is to him as a gay man. Uh, Daniel Wagner wrote a really good thread about family members that he has that are gay and transsexual and how important it is to them to feel represented and included by the players. Um, and yeah, like I, I hope the Canucks do it. I also think the Russian thing is a little weird. I, 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 that seems to be a narrative because of Provorov that is being spun, but I don't know if that's true or not. Well, well, it's not the Provorov narrative about religious beliefs. It's the new laws in Russia, the anti-gay laws. Uh, and that's the problem for the Russian players is they fear that they could get arrested when they return back to Russia. And everything I've heard and read is that this isn't necessarily an idle threat by Russia. This is uh, the new LGBTQ propaganda in Russia that came in in December uh, that makes it illegal to promote same-sex marriages or relationships or anything that is non-heterosexual. So a lot of these Russian players who have family back there who go back there in the summer, they're worried that by wearing a pride jersey, they are promoting LGBTQ propaganda and they can have an arrest warrant issued for them as soon as they enter Russia. They could get arrested at the airport. And that's where a lot of the Russian fears are coming from right now is is with that and again we haven't seen it happen to a player we don't know exactly what will happen there hasn't been anyone who's made an example of yet so it, it could all be idle threats from the russian government i mean on the flip side is the russian currency is is not doing well their economy is not doing well they need players in north america well, they don't need but it helps having players in america earning american dollars and spending that inside of Russia. So there, there is that flip side to it. Maybe they would turn a blind eye to what NHL players do over in North America. But in Russia, it's a very hard crackdown right now on pride flags and anything else that is promoting LGBTQ. So that, I think, is more where the problem is. Uh, but what Provorov citing religious beliefs and then Reimer citing religious beliefs, that's a whole different kind of a vein to, to go, go across. And I mean, I would be very disappointed if the Canucks don't have pride jerseys. I like all the special jerseys and nights. And, and one thing the Canucks have done very well is inclusivity and pride nights and, and uh, black history nights and indigenous nights. And uh, just they've, they've done a good job with that, with partnering with local artists and activists and and. I, it's something that you know I, I've been proud of as as a Canuck fan. When I went to the game with uh, Jeff, a life concussed on on Twitter, he thought it was really cool that we had the uh, Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh welcoming to the game. And I was like, oh yeah, I mean that's of course you got to do that here. But I think this, um, you know, if a Canuck player cited religious beliefs, I think look, you're you're getting paid a lot of money. It doesn't mean that you're gay. Or you're promoting it, it means you're you're showing all fans that they're welcome in this environment. It's a welcoming environment. We've heard, we've had, we've said this for years. Hockey's been a very old white man sport for a long time, 
and it's it shouldn't be it's it's you know i know a lot of people from different walks of life and colors and sexes and backgrounds and countries who like hockey i mean you and i have a lot of international friends from non-traditional hockey markets who love hockey and if you start putting these uh doing things like this it kind of makes people who maybe don't live in an as inclusive LBGTQ scene to city as Vancouver, it may make them think twice about going to a rink in their town, whether it's a small AHL or ECHL or WHL or, you know, getting away from urban areas where, where views often change quite a bit into more rural settings where the rinks are. It doesn't make it that accepting, but I do think from what I've been reading is there is a lot of fear among Russian players about what could happen to them when they go home, if they uh, wear this gear. And that I think that's a, that's a slightly different conversation um, than the religious beliefs one. But regardless of anything, I really hope the Canucks wear the jerseys because uh, geez, it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough look uh, for a team that's really trying to repair a lot of relationships with the fan base. Yeah, I, I agree. And obviously the Canucks have a lot of Russian players on their team, more than they've had in a couple of decades, I would say. Yeah, um, may, maybe ever, really. Yeah. Uh, Gavrikov, though, he was, a, you know, he's a Russian player. The LA Kings uh, acquired at the deadline. He wore the Pride warm-up jerseys when the Canucks were playing the Canucks. He was wearing it. Awesome. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very, it's a tough topic. And obviously... I don't agree with it, but a player like Reimer or Provorov, do they have the right to do what they did? Sure. Uh, I also would argue that there are a lot more churches out there that are becoming a lot more inclusive themselves that will have a pride flag in front of the church saying all are welcome. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter. Like we want you to come here and you know, you, so I, I think that whole narrative of the religious thing, and I know it's different than the Russian thing, but that's kind of bullshit. And a lot of these people yeah. who like interpret the Bible, it, it's like a couple of lines that doesn't really say anything about homosexuality or people's sexuality, no. but they've taken it and interpreted it the certain way and they've ran with it. And it's, it, it's yeah. total and bullshit in my opinion. Yeah, and not to get all theological, but then there's it's it's a very selective process. So like, oh, we'll take this thing, which contradicts a lot of other things in, in the Bible as well. Like, I mean, you know, one of the Ten Commandments right there it says, "Love one another." You know, yeah, absolutely. It, it that it's uh, it's a Ten Commandment. There's no Ten Commandment about you can't be gay or you can't love that person. It just says love one another. So uh, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, again, I don't want to get all theological here, but the religious thing to me, it, it's kind of like, look, you know, this is what our organization is doing. You don't have to do it if you don't want to, but really you should suck it up. And uh, it's not that like you're not promoting being gay. You're just making more people feel welcome in the buildings where you're meant to entertain them. And, uh, so we'll see what happens with Vancouver. I do have fears about uh, the Russian thing myself. Uh, again, not because of the uh, Russian Orthodox religion, but more so with the the laws in Russia at the moment. I don't know exactly what's been happening there, but I do know it is a, a talking point. But I really hope that the Canucks do something, that the players are all involved. 
Um, I really, I really do hope we see the jerseys because I thought the jerseys they had last year were awesome. And uh, I tried to get one of the t-shirts, but they sold out pretty quick. Yeah, I, and again, the, the Canucks with the specialty jersey nights—they've always done a bang-up job. The Diwali jerseys were great. Uh, the Lunar New Year yeah. jerseys have been great. Um, the Pride jerseys, yeah. again, they've always been a home run. And yeah, I, I get the Russian factor. It's it's, and I I didn't realize that the law had just been passed in November or December, like you said, Pete. But like Ovechkin, who's best friends with Putin, wore a Pride jersey last year. You know what I mean? Yeah. So and there yeah. was no issues with that. I don't know if Washington is planning a Pride night this year or what's going to happen if Ovechkin is not going to do it or if the team's just going to cancel them wearing those jerseys because of all that stuff. And again, I don't agree with it, but I get it. If you, if you're a Russian player and you have family back in Russia, or like you said, Pete, there's a chance that you could be arrested when you re-enter the country. Uh, I, 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 I can sympathize why you would be apprehensive to take part. Even if you have no issues with it, with same sex marriage, at all, I, I can understand it because, it, you know, you might not get to see your family. You might not get to see your parents. You know what I mean? And so I, mm. it's it, it, it's a political topic. We're a hockey podcast, but often these political and social commentary issues come up and you and I always talk about them. And yeah, I agree yep. with you. I will be very disappointed if the Canucks don't partake and wear the pride jerseys for their pride celebration night. Well, we always said it's better to talk about it and uh, maybe make a mess of ourselves talking about it than to not talk about it. Um, I do know looking at our recording schedule uh, that the next time we record will be after the Canucks Pride Night. So we'll be talking about it again on the next episode. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, in the next week or so how things transpire. Um, but we can we can hope for the best. We can hope to see the jerseys um, and we'll definitely talk about it some more on the next episode. And uh with that in mind, Doug, why don't we take this to the free pour? All right, it's that time of the episode for the free pour open floor segment. And I wanted to talk about a podcast and now an HBO documentary uh, that's just come out. So I'd actually listened to the podcast. I thought it was incredibly uh, well done and sad, extremely sad. And now HBO has done a little documentary on the podcast. Um, and it's the podcast is called Thunder Bay. And it's about Thunder Bay, Ontario, and about how there have been dozens and dozens of Indigenous women and men that have been killed or showing up dead in rivers. Uh, there's a famous story about a woman who had uh, like a like one of those tire or those like pull tire balls you know you, you put on the back of the truck a toe a toe ring or whatever a toe thrown at her and she ended up dying uh, from her injuries uh, there was a young indigenous boy who was a goalie back in 2011 who moved to Thunder Bay to play minor hockey it was a very very highly regarded young prospect who was tragically found dead. Um, it's an incredible documentary series about Thunder Bay and just the issues that Thunder Bay has had over the years with racism and how nothing has seemed to change. Um, there's a podcast out about it as well. 
if you haven't listened to the podcast or you haven't watched the documentary, you should absolutely watch it. Um, it's it's a hard watch. It's it's very sad, but I think it is important to hear and see uh, these stories of blatant racism and murder happening. And you know, the more people that talk about it and know about it, the more help and support and hopefully education we can have to those people out there who continue to perpetuate this these racist thoughts and ideologies towards people yeah man that's uh, i've read a bit about that that's uh, a pretty pretty sad situation i'll have to check that out um i just wanted to talk a little bit about uh well kind of uh, i'm going somewhere with this trust me um <laughs> but just about growing up growing growing up in general um I've been kind of thinking a lot about this lately, about how, you know, life life hasn't really, you can never really predict where your life is going to go. And uh, life's kind of, uh, certainly not where I thought I would be. And, uh, and just kind of just how there's certain things that I still really like to do that I used to do when I was a kid. And one of them is watching cartoons. I still really enjoy watching cartoons. And... I've, I've taken a liking to more adult cartoons, of course, as you get older. And one in particular I wanted to just mention, and I, I may have mentioned this on a, one of our episodes a long time ago, but I've started watching it again, and it still really resonates with me, is BoJack Horseman. I think this is a really smart cartoon that tackles a lot of things that people of our generation, like Gen Xers and, uh, and uh, Millennials, uh, are dealing with. And whether it's sexuality or social media or self-doubt or, or mental health, I think they just do a fantastic job of, of dealing with this in a serious yet funny way as well. And uh, I just wanted to kind of give that show a shout out. If you're going through anything or just want a good cartoon series and you're like, I'm not going to watch a cartoon about a talking horse, I really recommend watching it. It's uh, it's a great series. And I think it's, uh, for me, it's something now that's on a regular spin cycle. And uh, it's kind of helped me with some things as well. So even though I don't want to grow up, yeah, you kind of evolve. I still watch cartoons, but the cartoons I watch now, Probably a, a little more in depth than GI Joe and Transformers back in the eighties. Thanks for tuning in, folks. Episode one hundred and forty is just about in the books, and Doug is a pretty easy decision to what to talk about. For the outro in the world of sports, uh, how about that World Baseball Classic last night? Like, that was, you couldn't write that up any better. No. And for me, like, going into the World Baseball Classic, I wasn't really enthralled with it. Uh, I think this is the third one, I believe. Um, I was kind of like, okay, woo, big deal. But as the tournament kept going, it kept building up steam, and the games were really good. The players playing in those games really gave a shit, which I think is important. The fans, you know, some of those stadiums and some of those shots of the fans were just absolutely electric. And it all culminated last night into arguably one of the greatest, you know, showdowns we've ever seen in sport. And like, I'm not, you know, I know it's hyperbole, hyperbole to say that, but like, I truly believe that. Like, Mike Trout, when healthy, is considered to be the best hitter of his generation. 
Shohei Otani is the definition of a unicorn. We have not seen a player that can hit like Shohei and pitch like Shohei since Babe Ruth. And I'm not that old. I never got to see Babe Ruth. And to see them go head-to-head last night, game on the line, two outs, bottom of the ninth, the Americans down one run, and Shohei versus Mike Trout, teammates as well. Incredible theater. It, it really was. I mean, yeah, some of those scenes from buildings, like in the Tokyo Dome. Uh, I love that Japan got there. Like For me, one of my best sports moments uh, that I've ever been a part of was going to see a baseball game in Tokyo. And I didn't go to the Tokyo Dome. I saw uh, the uh, the Swallows play, which uh, played in an outdoor stadium, kind of like how the Mets in the Yankees. It's kind of, kind of a very similar thing that they got going uh, in, in Tokyo there with, uh, with the two teams. Um, so I've always got a soft spot for Japanese baseball. And, of course, watching Ichiro down here for as long as we had, did as well down in Seattle, that helped. So I was cheering for Japan in that one. But, yeah, when you... You could kind of see it coming, and from about you know the sixth inning onwards, like uh, Shohei's in the bullpen now. He, oh wait, he's number two in the lineup. He's going back to he's going back to the bench now. He's going back to the bullpen, and you kind of could see as the game went on, is like there's a very good chance that the last out of this game could come down to Trout and Otani, and that's exactly what happened. And and the question getting asked around hockey today, of course, is when will we see a best on best? tournament when will we see mcdavid go against rice or uh when will we see hughes go against Pedersen or marner go against matthews like when will we see these things and uh i think it, it was uh a, a, you're right it was a, a tournament that took me a while to get going but i thought the game last night close game and the way it finished uh that's a bit of baseball history you're gonna you're gonna remember that one forever yeah and again i hope you got a long song Pete, yeah because uh the other thing I wanted to say about this is I actually think it helped grow the game and get people extremely excited for the upcoming MLB season by having it where it was. And I know a couple players got hurt, and I think uh, there was a Mets player that got hurt, which obviously sucks. Now he's out for the season. But I think the actual hype for the upcoming baseball season because of this tournament is probably the most we've seen in 20 years, which is great. Great for baseball. Um and yeah, man, I was tweeting about it a bit last night about, I hope Gary Bettman's paying attention. I hope the NHL's paying attention because we do need best on best. The fact that Connor McDavid has been in the NHL for what, eight, nine years now, and he's never played in the Olympics. He's never played for Team Canada at a professional level. Obviously when he was a junior player, he played for Team Canada, but he's never played for Team Canada at a professional level. Guys like Austin Matthews, it's just like, what are we doing here? And I get it, you know, scheduling the IOC, they're hard to deal with, but we got to get it done. And I know when the collective bargaining agreement comes up, this will definitely be one of the things that I assume the PA will be bringing to the table. We're really starting to lose the window and the possibility of seeing a Team Canada that has McDavid, Crosby, and McKinnon on it. And that window is getting very, very small now. And if we don't get to see that, man... You know, that's that you, that harkens back to like the eighty seven Canada Cup when you had a line with Gretzky and Lemieux and Howard Chuck out there or Messier or whoever, like uh, it's uh, we need to, to get it happen. And you're right, Doug, I am gonna need a long outro track here. So hopefully I found one and we're not just talking over some dead air here. Folks, one more time you can follow us on Twitter. <laughs> I'm at Pete underscore gas and do check out our playlist on Spotify, which we'll have 
this outro track on it as well, the Canuck Speakeasy outro playlist. Give it a follow. You can give me a follow on Twitter at Doug Ben. Be sure to follow the podcast on Twitter at Canuck Speak. As always, thanks for listening. Hasta luego.